This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm joined today by Dara Roth Edney. Dara is a Toronto-based reproductive counselor and a social worker. Uh, she is a member of the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Dara works with individuals, couples, and families who are experiencing infertility or seeking assisted fertility options like egg and sperm donation. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. You have a background uh, that is not in social work. You, you started out in teacher's college. You worked in the film and television industry. Mm-hmm. Then you moved into working in geriatrics. How did you decide that reproductive counseling was going to be your area of specialty? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that I definitely had a windy road to here. I think the thing that has always been pretty consistent with the work that I've done is my interest in people. So even from a young age, I I loved reading. I actually loved fairy tales. I loved anything that had to do with human emotion and experience. And so initially, my background actually originally was in uh, English literature. And I I thought, oh, I'd be a teacher. I have always, always loved children. And so I started doing that. And then for a variety of reasons, decided that that wasn't for me and had an opportunity to work on a children's television show. So again, sort of themes around kids has always been uh, part of my experience. And I worked in that and, and in film for, for a number of years. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to tell stories, storytelling and, and learning about people's experiences has always been a really primary part of my interests. And then there was this period of time when actually uh, my grandmother, who I was very close with, was dying. And I was visiting her often in the nursing home. And I found, as opposed to other people who found that process to be really sort of energy sucking, while it was devastating to see her aging and, and not well, I really loved actually being with her in that place and feeling like I was giving her comfort. And I liked connecting with all the neighbors she had in the nursing home. And so that made me do a complete rethink of what I wanted to do. And I decided I wanted to go into social work and work with geriatrics, uh, which I did. And I loved that. I really loved it until my own infertility started taking a significant toll. Uh, it turns out old people really like babies. <laughs> and, uh, and the people I was working with who I loved, and I loved my work in the nursing home, but they were constantly asking me when I was having kids. So I, at that point, I was in my mid-20s, and, or late 20s, actually. And uh, they knew that I, that I was married. And I was getting that question repeatedly. When was I going to have children? People telling me not to wait too long to have children. All of the comments that I'm sure many listeners get all of the time. And it got to the point where I was dreading going in to see the people that I used to really love interacting with. And it got to the point where my mental health was really suffering being in a place that was so focused on the joy that children bring and these elderly people who were looking for that joy from me. And I just, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I actually uh, had to stop that position. And I started working in a research area where I could not be so forward facing with people, with patients. Uh, and my interest with when I was working in geriatrics was around women and mental health in geriatrics. And so I continued that with my research work and was doing work around mental health. 
And because I've always been open about my infertility, as I was going through my own infertility, starting with trying at home, I'm in a heterosexual relationship. So starting at home with my partner and then going to a clinic and starting with inseminations and IVF. And I had over those years, multiple surgeries and testing and all of that. And I, I had been fairly open about my experience and I started getting phone calls, uh, phone calls from people I knew and phone calls from people I didn't know, the sort of, um, you know, my friends, brothers, neighbors, dry cleaner kind of thing, like just getting calls from truly random people who had heard that I was going through this or heard that I was doing or had done IVF. Um, and because at that point I had had a background in social work and I, by, at that point I had a, I had gone to a master's degree program and I had a graduate degree in social work. So I obviously had the background skills in terms of counseling and uh, had been doing that. And so I, started finding that I was doing just ad hoc counseling work with people who were calling me. And when that started taking up significant portion of my evening, it occurred to me that maybe that was something I should be doing, that clearly there was a significant need out there. And so I scaled my research work back to part-time and started a part-time counseling business in the area of fertility. And over the course of the next, I, I would say over those next maybe two, three years, uh, it was clear that the need for supports in this area was just enormous. And it's now been more than 15 years that I've been doing this full time in the area of reproduction. So I want to get back a little bit more to your personal story in a minute, your story dealing with infertility yourself. But, you know, were you giving, were you offering counseling, uh, reproductive counseling while you were going through fertility treatments and while you were experiencing that challenge? I was, although I would say, I don't know that I would call it counseling in the formalized way that I do it now. I would say it would have been more peer support and education. So I think that there are a lot of people who go through any experience that is life-changing, who have a lot to offer other people. But I think that we have to be very careful about where our own vulnerabilities are and our own ability to kind of separate our experience from the experience of others. So, for example, when I was going through the earlier stages of my infertility and my IVF, while it was certainly appropriate and I did talk to other people about what IVF is like and what they could expect and what was scary and things like that, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to do sort of more formal counseling with people around that because I just, I, I was a mess. Uh, and that's just the truth. I was emotionally, I was not doing well. It's a really brutal thing to go through. When I got to surrogacy, which was ultimately my path to parenthood, uh, I was certainly in a more stable emotional place. And certainly I was in a better place to be able to do some guidance and counseling on a more professional level with people who were just starting out. Um, but for example, I couldn't have, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to do counseling with people who were looking at surrogacy because my, I didn't know how my surrogacy journey was going to go. And that felt too vulnerable. So I would say that, that really, um, my, my full counseling practice in a more formalized way where I have my own business and this is what I do as a, as my permanent career, um, that really was after I had my first child through surrogacy. And, and, I, and I was in a different emotional place and more able to offer, to, and more able to separate myself and my experience from that, uh, that, that clients and patients are bringing forward when they come to me for support. So you now have two, two teenagers. Um, I do. And I want to hear a little bit about how, how did you get your two teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So 
Yeah, so uh, both of them are through surrogacy. So ultimately, I I ended up, my path ended up with four four rounds of IVF with uh, myself and my partner that were not successful. Um, we had one early loss in there and the rest of the time I just was not getting pregnant. Uh, and so at that point, I, I guess it had probably been five, five years or so when, you know, it, it didn't matter what we did, nothing worked. Uh, I had various surgeries. We had some diagnoses, underlying diagnoses, but nothing really seemed to be the answer. So, uh, it, you know, it's interesting that statistically speaking, they say that a third of infertility is female factor issues. A third is male factor and a third is a combination. Uh, and actually we were in that combo. So um, there, there were issues both on the male and female side, uh, but those issues explained why we would need IVF. The issues didn't explain why the IVF wasn't working. So, um, over time and over variety of tests and diagnostic things that were done where they kept thinking they would find an answer and we would do another round of IVF or I would have a surgery and be on medication for months at a time to see if that would make a difference. Um, ultimately, um, there was a final test that was done. Uh, I guess it probably would have been sometime early 2000. Uh, and my doctor was fairly confident that if we addressed the issue that that test showed through a surgical procedure and months of medication, that that would be our answer. Um, but then when I was retested at the end of those long months of pretty strong, powerful medication, it, there was no change. And so then it just sort of became clear that the chances of me being able to carry successfully to term were pretty slim. No doctor ever said impossible, um, but it was pretty clear that that didn't look like how it was going to go. And so that's when we decided to look to surrogacy. So what, why did you decide to take that route? Because, you know, mm -hmm. at that point, you know, you could decide, you know what, we're not going to have children at all, or we're going to adopt. What made you decide to choose the surrogacy route? I think the idea of not having children at all, which is always an option, and for lots of people, it is absolutely the right option. For me, that was never an option. I don't, I don't know if I would have answered that differently had our surrogacy path not gone the way it had. But for me, actually, I've never been ambivalent about having children. That has been the thing I've always wanted to do. From the time I was five years old, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said a mom. Uh, and in fact, I have a memory of my mother telling me that uh, I needed to have a job as a backup because sometimes people don't end up being moms or they are moms, but they're the only people earning money in their family because they're alone and they need to have a job too. And I remember thinking that that was actually like, whatever, like, but she didn't know what she was talking about. Your mom that, sounds that, very cool. <laughs> yeah. She was like, you need to have a backup. Like, that's great that you want to be a mom. Um, but life doesn't always work out the way we want. And, and I really just kind of, I never actually paid that much attention to it in reality because to me, that was it. Like I, I needed to be a mom. So I think that that was always the direction in terms of adoption, which is of course, always a, a great option. The reason why it didn't feel like something we were going to pursue at that point, again, if surrogacy had not worked out, I don't know where our path would have led us. A few reasons. One, despite what people think, adoption is very, very difficult. It is not like it was 40 or 50 years ago. Um, there are significant restrictions on adoption. There actually aren't that many children available to adopt. 
there are certainly older children available for adoption, but as a young couple who hadn't parented yet, we certainly didn't feel like we would be equipped to take on an older child that we had when we had no idea how to be parents yet. Um, and I had heard some fairly significant horror stories, as I'm sure lots of people have, about not just how long the wait is, but also, thankfully, we live in a place where birth mothers can change their minds, right? Where if somebody says they're going to place their child for adoption and then upon giving birth realizes that they don't want to, that they have the right to keep their baby, as it should be. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that I could, I, I, it didn't feel like I could survive that. It felt like the, the unknowns in terms of adoption, in terms of the weight, in terms of depending on somebody else to pick us and to then pick us again, uh, that, that didn't feel like something that I was in a place to be able to manage. Uh, and, and I think part of it too was we already were on a track. So going from insemination to IVF and then going from IVF to surrogacy, it still felt like it was along the same path. At that point, I would say that certainly for me, the idea of having a genetic connection to my child was appealing. Although, interestingly enough, more and more now, I, I, don't, I don't think of it that way. But at the time, that certainly was uh, a, what felt like a plus for me. And it just seemed like sort of the natural next step. Or I guess natural is a funny word to use in this context, but it, 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 felt, it felt like a seamless, that is also a ridiculous word to use in this context. It felt like the right, it felt like the right next step for us. We were still with the clinic that we liked, with a doctor that we trusted. It was still, it was still in, a, in a realm that we felt like we understood. We had been at that point within the fertility clinic world, um, you know, for going on six years. So it, it felt familiar in a way that the idea of something else like adoption just felt like a completely huge unknown to us. So through and this so, whole period, yeah. and, and we'll, we'll, I, I want to, there's so much that I want to ask you that I think people listening who are going through this right now would probably like to know, but really what, what kind of kept you going through this? I mean, six years is a long time uh, mm-hmm. to be dealing with uncertainty around what's going to be your life from one week to the next. Um, how did you, how did you sort of manage that period of time? Mm-hmm. I mean, was, what was the hardest part about it? I think sometimes when we're in things that are so hard, it doesn't, you don't think of it that way. I mean, I, I do remember at times feeling like I was, people, people have often commented that I'm strong and that I'm resilient. And, and that's true. That those are definitely aspects of my personality. I, I do remember at times feeling like a giant bear in the forest who have been, who had been like shot numerous times in the back, but because my height is so thick, I didn't even realize I was bleeding and just sort of like stumbling through the forest, like dying, but not even knowing I was dying. Like I, I did at times kind of feel like that. So when people told me I was strong or brave, that, that actually never resonated with me. I, I didn't feel any of those things. I felt terrified and devastated and heartbroken. Uh, I think what kept me going was I had no ambivalence about wanting to be a mother. So certainly I have friends and I have had many, many clients over the years who do have some ambivalence. Um, they they want to be a parent, but they're not sure how much or they're not sure if they're they're, they're willing to do the expensive and physically and emotionally painful things that they might need to do. I never had any ambivalence about any of those things. 
Um, and I'm not saying that that's a good thing. It also meant that I didn't pay attention when my doctor told me about risks. Like I actually didn't care about what any of the risks were. And I can remember not paying attention and my partner and the doctor saying like, you need to pay attention to this. Um, so, so certainly I would say, I think my, um, my strong desire to, to go to the, to go as far as I could go was part of it. Uh, I had the benefit of having uh, a partner that was on the same page as me, who was very supportive of me and who also wanted this as much as I did. Um, and I think I was very good at being able to assess what I needed and then to do what I needed to do to get it. Uh, and so it, it didn't take long for me to start putting boundaries around what I was able to do with family, with friends, even with my job. And, and certainly I was in a privileged position to be able to make those choices. Not everybody can. And I am, was at the time aware and still am that I was very privileged to be able to, to take a step back from a job that was causing me pain and take a different path. Not everybody can do that. Um, but wherever I was able to, I did make choices to make boundaries that for sure made other people unhappy and made them feel like it meant I wasn't coping. But in fact, it was the opposite. So when I chose not to go somewhere or not to see somebody or not to do something, I think my sense is that people thought, oh, poor Dara, she's really not coping well. She can't come to this baby shower or she can't come to this holiday dinner. Like that means she's not doing well. Uh, but actually it was the opposite. Like what I needed to be okay was not to do those things. You were just taking care of yourself. I was taking care of myself. So I, I think that that went a long way. Um, and I had the support of a great therapist. I mean, I saw somebody once a week for maybe two years. How, how, do you, how do you even begin to choose a surrogate to carry your child? You used a gestational surrogate, which means I that did. it was your egg um, and your, your partner's sperm uh, in a surrogate's body. Correct. So gestational surrogacy doesn't have to necessarily be the intended mother's egg. So that's the language is intended mother, intended father would be the, the people who are intending to parent. Um, so for example, you could have a gestational surrogacy arrangement with two intended fathers. And in that case, the egg is coming from an egg donor. So the idea of gestational surrogacy is just that the egg that has been used to create the embryo that she is going to be carrying is not hers. It's coming from somebody right. else. So we did, we used a gestational surrogate or gestational carrier, depending on the language that you use. Um, and in fact, in our scenario, it was with our genetics. Um, and yes, I mean, there's no doubt picking somebody to carry a baby for you is incredibly challenging and terrifying. I am not a laid back kind of person. <laughs> um, and uh, the idea of somebody else one, I mean, it was sort of two parts. One is the idea of somebody else uh, being entrusted with this embryo that carried all of my hopes and dreams about being a mom and trusting them to take care of my baby as it was growing and to eat well and to be responsible with her body and her choices and then to give us our baby at the end. And the other part of it was about the pregnancy. So that part of it was about the baby. Um, but the other part of it was about the pregnancy. I was 
heartbroken. And to be honest, part of me will always be heartbroken that I didn't have the chance to experience something that most women who wish to are able to experience. Um, that was a very, very big deal for me not to be able to experience a pregnancy. Mm. Ironically, I think for me, it would have been easier for me not to have the genetic link, but to have the pregnancy. The pregnancy was something I had always imagined and really wanted. And it was desperately heartbreaking for me not to be able to have that experience. Do you think it had any impact on you on, on bonding with your baby when the baby came? Hmm, interesting. So I feel bonded right away. So interesting. I'll, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to just follow up on the last question you asked in terms of choosing, uh, because I, I don't want to let that one pass because I think it's a question people ask me all the time. How will they know if it's the right surrogate? How will they know how to choose the right donor? Like kind of how will you know? And the truth is that when you get to the moment in time of making a decision, you either have the evidence or you don't have the evidence. And so I'll give you an example. We were, we were with an agency. We were matched with a surrogate uh, as our at, sort of right off the start in terms of who would be a good fit for us. And we met with her and she had a lot of pluses. Like she was willing to do this. She had been a surrogate before. She was very open with us and very welcoming and allowed us into her home and to meet her children. And so there were lots of things that were really great. But there were a few things that we just... And not necessarily even things that we could put our finger on, but there were some things that made us unsure. And for weeks, my partner and I just kept saying to each other, what do you think? Well, what do you think? And okay, there's this. Okay, yes, but there's that. And sort of playing devil's advocate. And I wanted to know what my sister thought. And I wanted to know what the, um, whoever was doing the psychoassessment thought. And, and we just kept asking questions. We didn't, we didn't eventually work with her. When we met the woman who was to carry what, who is now my oldest daughter, we had no questions. Like I was talking to her about dates of menstrual cycles and how quickly she could get into the clinic within like a half an hour of meeting her. And it wasn't until we were in the car driving home that I turned to my partner and I said, oh, I guess I should have asked you, what do you think? <laughs> I had, it was, I, I, and I'm not to say that there weren't any questions or worries or concerns. Of course, there were a thousand worries and concerns, but I wasn't worried about her. And so I think it's sort of that idea of, if you are continuously asking yourself if this is the right person, that's a message. Like that is telling you something. And so if the idea of surrogacy fills you with so much dread that you can't even imagine stepping into that space to think about it, you're not ready yet. Being ready to think about surrogacy doesn't mean you're ready to do it. And the same thing with choosing a surrogate. Of course, there are things that you're looking for. You want somebody who has had children before, ideally. You want somebody who has a life that evokes some stability. Um, you want somebody who is healthy. You want somebody who's not smoking, who's not going to drink. Like There are some basic things that you're looking for. But the truth is you can meet somebody who fits all of that criteria and you don't get a good feeling. And you can meet somebody who's missing some of those points, but you really get a good feeling about her. And with the support of your agency, if you're with an agency, your counselor, your lawyer, you might be able to work through some of those concerns in a way that makes you feel more comfortable. So a big part of it is trying not to anticipate a decision you're going to have to make and force yourself to make that decision before you have the evidence you'll need to make that decision, if that makes sense. 
That makes total sense. I mean, it's, I imagine that is something that you would be applying to the entire process because there's so many decisions you have to make when you're experiencing infertility, whether mm-hmm. or not you're going to use uh, a donor surrogate, uh, whether, or sorry, a donor that again, there's so many, there are so many questions that you need to address as you go along the way. And when you get ahead of yourself, uh, then you probably can't address them. So there's, you know, some of the biggest issues would be what that you might have to decide as you go. I think it's important to have sort of a high macro level sense of things, right? So if you, if you're trying to decide if you could ever wrap your head around, you're doing your first IVF and you're trying to decide, could you wrap your head around doing four more IVFs and then surrogacy and egg donation if you needed to? There's no way you could know that answer before you've done your first IVF. On the other hand, you might know that you're willing or not willing to do that. And that can be a helpful thing to discuss. So, you know, you asked earlier, some of the things that helped me get through some of those hard times is I really felt like whatever I was willing to do, that I had a partner who'd be willing to do that with me. And so certainly it's useful to know if there is an endpoint for somebody. That doesn't mean the endpoint might not shift. In fact, endpoints often shift. But there's a difference between having a sense of plan A, plan B versus plan B, C, D, E, all the way to Z. And part of that is because for a lot of people, it feels like having a sense of what to do next will be helpful, that it's a way of managing anxiety to know what you're going to do next. And I think that that's true when you're talking about one step next. The problem is when you're talking about 10 steps next, you've built in so much anxiety and so much devastation and things that have failed that you can't possibly know how you're going to feel, nor can you possibly know what choices might be appropriate. So if we think of ourselves as batteries that can run out, when you're thinking too far along the path, what you're doing is you are expending your precious energy on scenarios that might never come to be and that you would have no possible way of knowing how you would navigate because you're not anywhere near there yet. So the idea really is to stay as much as possible in the present Of course, it can be helpful for some people to plan one step ahead. So I'm not suggesting that one shouldn't do that, but you just don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Now you had, I think, a successful experience, a positive experience with your first surrogate. And then you went on and had uh, a second child with a second surrogate. Correct. And was that also a good experience? It was. There's an expression, uh, I don't know how to say it in Yiddish because I don't speak Yiddish, but my grandmother used to say it and it it translates loosely to you have to be lucky in your bad luck. So uh, it goes without saying in terms of our infertility and the underlying medical issues that were going on that contributed to the infertility that we had some very bad luck, but we had some very, very good luck with what brought us to our child. So we had two different surrogacy experiences with two wonderful, wonderful women. Uh, And one carried my first daughter. And a number of years later, we found another woman who carried our second. Neither of them were women we had known beforehand. So obviously that is terrifying. (laughs) It's it's terrifying to, uh, to imagine doing that, but less terrifying the second time. And you asked about bonding and, and what that experience is like. I think it's important to remember that the thing that bonds us to people is our relationship with them. And so while it is true that lots of women bond as soon as they know they're pregnant and they talk about it like that, or they love being pregnant and they're bonded with their baby almost immediately, 
There are women who, as soon as their baby is born, they are madly in love and bond instantly. I also think it's important that we recognize that that's not true of all women. And it's not it true. It wasn't true for me. And I, I wasn't true for me. I, I had a, a regular pregnancy and a, and a birth and I have a daughter now. And that bonding didn't happen for me right away. I think that's such an important thing to say. And people don't talk about that very often. No, they don't. And I think it's so, it's ridiculous to say that something is brave to say that is actually a very common part of human experience, right? (laughs) Um, But it is brave as a woman to say that. On the other hand, if if a man said, oh yeah, I didn't bond with my kid till they were six, seven months old and they recognized me and they played with me, people would say, oh, of course, of course you did. But for a woman to say that, it's somehow shocking. And so I think it's important to remember when people are worried about bonding with a baby through egg donation or sperm donation or surrogacy, that we remember that lots of people don't bond with their babies who are conceived naturally right away because relationships take time. And even people who do bond right away with a baby are not as well bonded at the moment that baby is born as when they're a year old or 15 years old. So I think it is true that bonding can happen during pregnancy, and I didn't have that opportunity. It's also true that bonding doesn't doesn't necessarily happen during pregnancy. And so certainly for me, I was doing all of the things other parents were doing and dreaming of names and getting a nursery ready and planning for all of that. I think the reason that, I think the thing that got in my way was not ultimately the fact that I didn't carry my daughter. The thing that got in the way of my bonding very seamlessly, with hindsight, I can say, was that I actually didn't believe it was, part of me didn't believe it was ever going to happen. I spent so long wanting it so much. And I spent so many years trying to protect myself by telling myself, it's probably not going to work. Don't get your hopes up. I mean, I can remember an instance when my first surrogate was eight and a half months pregnant and a friend said to me something about when the baby comes. And I said, when the, and I said, if the baby comes. And she was like, what do you mean if? Like, she's due in two weeks. And I was like, we'll see about that. <laughs> and I mean, like, I'm laughing, but, but I, I, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't sound strange to me to feel that way. Exactly, right? So I'm laughing too now, but I, was, but I was actually completely serious. Like, people drop gifts off and I wouldn't accept them. Like, really part of me was like, it felt like, this sounds so crazy to say after everything we had been through, but it felt like it couldn't possibly be this easy that like we find somebody and it works. It's easy. Six, <laughs> I know. six years, right? Six I know, six years. years and, you know, untold amounts of money and surgeries and pain and, you know, but it, but it did feel like as soon as it started going well, it felt like, and that's the thing that there's no, there's no lightning when it, when something goes well, like it just, it, it goes terribly and horribly and everything goes wrong until it goes right. And then when it goes right, it feels like that can't possibly be true. Because well, you expect the angels to start singing, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> exactly. And so, so I, I was so, even though I was excited, of course I was excited. And even though there were some moments of joy during the pregnancy, of course there were. I also, part of me, kept waiting for something bad to happen. And, and in fact, I have a memory of walking down the street with my daughter I can't remember whether she was in one of those slings or a stroller or whatever, but there was a woman walking towards me who was hugely pregnant and she was holding the hand of a kid who looked like maybe about five and she had a stroller with another child in the stroller. And I'm going to just be very honest here. I I gave her such a dirty look 
And then I was like, oh, that's right. I have a baby myself. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm, I actually don't, I, I was so used to being wow. in a place of such pain and being so triggered by seeing pregnant people and by feeling so heartbroken and jealous and bitter and angry. Like I was so used to being in that space that even when I had my child, it, it wasn't a light switch that went off that I was like, oh good, I'm not infertile anymore. Like I'm still infertile. I will always be infertile. The difference is I now have a child. And so I think by the time it, it took me, it took me some time to feel like a mom. So that wasn't because I wasn't pregnant. I don't think it would have made a difference. I was so used to, I was so used to being sure that it was never going to happen that when it did happen, it still didn't feel like it did. And then when I had my second daughter, I already was a mom. I already felt like a mom. So the bonding with her was instantaneous and that the experiences of the pregnancy were the same. And so that's also what really shows me, like, it's not about pregnancy. It's not even about eggs and sperm. It's about what you're able to put into it in terms of your intention and your heart opening up to what your experience is. I wasn't there yet with my first one and I was with my second. How do you think that going through this challenge for six years, um, experiencing infertility yourself, how do you think that's impacted the way you work with clients? I think I have a degree of understanding and empathy that is very specific, that is hard to get if you don't go through this. And certainly my experience was, was, was very intense. I mean, it was many IVF cycles, um, a lot of drugs, a number of surgeries, and then ultimately gestational surrogacy. So we, you know, we did go pretty far down the fertility path. Uh, so I think I have a, a good understanding of the emotional challenges. I have a good understanding of how to navigate family. I know, I know the kinds of comments people make, um, the kinds of comments people still make when they find out I had a baby through surrogacy. And I think as well, I'm in a position to understand some of the, the feelings of, of guilt, of blame, of shame, of isolation, of loneliness, of heartbreak that comes along with this. And the other side of it is also the, the practical side. So obviously I'm not a doctor. I do not give medical advice, but I also have been through IVF. So when people ask me how it hurts or what it feels like, or when they're going for a certain test, if I've done that test, I, I do know what those things feel like. So there is, there is something in that. And I think, unfortunately, because we live in a world that doesn't talk much about this and that when it is talked about, it tends to be the happy endings. You know, you might see an article in a newspaper about a movie star who's had her baby and, and in the article, she acknowledges that she had multiple miscarriages, which is an astonishingly wonderful thing for her to acknowledge because certainly years ago that she wouldn't have acknowledged that. So it's great that she acknowledges it, but she also acknowledges it holding her baby right? She didn't acknowledge it when she was having her miscarriages before she had her baby. So we do live in a world that doesn't talk about miscarriage. It doesn't talk about um, reproductive failures and trying and not being successful. It doesn't talk about male infertility and the testing that's involved and the procedures that are involved for men. It doesn't talk about what it's like to be a male partner and to watch somebody you love going through this. Like it, we don't talk about any of those things. So I also think that people knowing that I've been through this gives them a degree of comfort because they know they're talking to somebody 
who who has that understanding as well as the educational background that that I also have that personal understanding. Let's talk about some of the common misconceptions about infertility, you know, uh, that you can, you just need to relax, you, you need to do some meditation and get a good night's sleep and you can get pregnant. What do you say to that? Yes, I mean, that for sure, I would say would be one of my most triggering misconceptions. And it sort of feels ironic because I think for a lot of heterosexual couples, when they first started trying, they were very relaxed, but they didn't get pregnant. And all kinds of relaxed people have miscarriages. Um, so it, it really doesn't make sense that that's what it is. And more so, I think it's important that we remember that infertility isn't a state of being. It is a disease. I mean, the World Health Organization identified it as a disease and has for many years now. And it's important to remember that a lot of infertility, it's not just a blanket word that, that doesn't include anything under it, right? So endometriosis is a medical disease that is, I think, something like 30% of infertility is caused by endometriosis. I mean, people have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Men have sperm with significant DNA fragmentation. Uh, there are medical conditions that either contribute to subfertility or cause infertility or sterility. So nothing that you think is going to change what is an underlying medical condition. Of course, people do talk about those, you know, seemingly miraculous instances where somebody they know stopped trying, they gave up or they adopted and, you know, somehow miraculously on vacation or years later, they conceived. There have been studies done and those studies show that those people fit into the population of people who always would have conceived. So for example, if I have partially blocked fallopian tubes, that means it is very difficult for sperm to get through my fallopian tubes and for me to get pregnant. But it's not impossible. It's just really difficult. If my male partner has a low sperm count, that doesn't mean he has no sperm. It doesn't mean it's impossible that I would get pregnant. It just means the chances are low because his count is low. So there has always been a population of people who are not sterile. They, they, it, it isn't that there's no chance of a pregnancy. It's just that their chances are really, really low based on their diagnosis. And so some of those people always would have gotten pregnant with enough time and enough effort because it was always possible. Somebody who has no fallopian tubes or who has fully blocked tubes or who has so much scar tissue from endometriosis or whose partner has a full blockage, not allowing any sperm to get through, there's never going to be a miraculous pregnancy. To say the least of people who are single or part of LGBTQ populations. Now, I've read that experiencing infertility and, and some of the treatments that, that go along with that when you're trying to have a baby can be as stressful as having cancer. Yes, there was a study that was done out of Harvard Medical School, uh, published, I think, in 2009, possibly, um, that found that people who have ongoing, so that's not just uh, sort of like short-term efforts and treatment around infertility, but who have ongoing issues with infertility have similar rates of depression and anxiety as those diagnosed with cancer, HIV, and heart disease. So how do you work with your clients to help them manage that stress and anxiety? So I think first off to say that it is incredibly important to manage it and not because it's going to get you that outcome. And that goes back to that idea of, you know, that, that misconception about stress. So while I don't believe that reducing stress will result in a pregnancy, it is very clear that high levels of stress, high levels of distress are and can be debilitating. The higher our stress is, the less well we're sleeping, 
the more conflict we're probably experiencing with our partner. I know that when I'm under a tremendous amount of stress, my brain also just doesn't work as well. So when you're sitting in front of your doctor and they're talking to you about options or treatment plans, the higher your level of distress, the less information you're able to absorb, um, the poorer your decision-making is. So all kinds of things in our life suffer when we're under tremendous amounts of distress. So the goal of lowering stress is to try and make what is a really difficult, difficult situation and time in your life a little bit easier. So without stress management techniques, it really can feel like every minute of every day is devastating. With the ability to bring in some strategies, some techniques that can help either reduce or eliminate some of the stress that you're going through, it could mean that in any given day, you have some moments of reprieve, whether that's a few moments here and there or a couple of hours cobbled together where your stress has been lowered, where everything doesn't feel 100 degrees awful, maybe you've been able to get it down to 60 and to me, that's part of the strategy of stress reduction. I, I think it is unrealistic to expect somebody who is going through what might be the most devastating experience of their entire life. I think it's unrealistic to expect them to eliminate stress. I, I think that that's an unfair thing to ask somebody to do. But I also know that there are ways that we can reduce stress in order to make some space for things that will bring us a bit of joy or a bit of connection or even some moments of peace so that there are moments kind of sprinkled through your day that don't feel as devastating as the worst moments of your day. So part of this, that stress, um, I would imagine, is dealing with certain day-to-day things that everybody has to deal with. So, you know, questions such as, you know, when are you going to have kids? You guys don't have kids yet. Um, how do you answer people that ask those kinds of questions? Those questions are absolutely one of the bigger triggers. And one of the reasons, truthfully, people stop attending the things that they were attending before. It's one of the reasons people talk about having um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that it's not post, it's present. Uh, And people, in fact, going through infertility do have huge signifiers of traumatic stress disorders because before you go to a party or before you go to a dinner, you're already anticipating those questions and you're anticipating the heartbreak that's going to come when you get asked those questions. So my suggestion around that is around a bit of pre-planning. So to first sit down before you go to any event and try and anticipate who is going to be there. When you know who's going to be there, you can start to imagine what kind of questions they might ask you. If you're going somewhere where you're seeing older relatives you haven't seen for a while, maybe you know that that's one who's always asking that question. If you are getting in touch and going together with somebody who has been married for two years and who sent you a message saying they're really excited to have dinner with you, then maybe you can anticipate possibly there's a pregnancy announcement. So sometimes you could just really make a list of the people that are going to be there and try and anticipate what are some of the things they might say. And then going in, you can be prepared with some of your answers. So one of my suggestions is to have sort of a three-level answer. And depending on your mood and who's asked you the question, you can pull out whichever answer feels best. And being prepared helps you feel a bit more in control. There are about a million awful things about infertility and about reproductive loss. And one of the big ones that goes across all of the realms of it is a feeling of being totally out of control. So when you're in a social situation and somebody asks you a question, 
you feel completely out of control and unprepared for the question or how to answer it. But you can manage that by pre-preparing. So what, so, kind of, what kind of answers could you give? Absolutely. So, for example, you could decide that you want to be very vague. And somebody who says to you, oh, what's happening with you guys? Do you have any kids? Any plans to have kids? What's going on with that? You could say, oh, yeah, I mean, we've always thought about kids, but the truth is work is going really well now, and we've decided to kind of focus on that. But I'm sure we'll get to that at some point, right? Like you could say something just really vague. Mm -hmm. Depending on the person and your mood, you also could acknowledge what is true, which is that it's not easy, but without going into detail. So you could say, actually, we'd really love to have kids, and we've started going on that path, but it's actually not been as easy as we hoped, um, but we're hoping for some good news soon. So again, like not too dire, but also acknowledging that it's not so easy. The third one is what I call the nuclear option. So that is one that is rarely used. I did use my nuclear option a couple of times, I have to admit, and I'll share with you what that was. Mostly though, the thing that I always liked about the nuclear option was it actually made me feel like I had a little bit of power. And what I mean by that is that I felt so helpless and so powerless. People would ask me questions and I didn't want to be rude. And so I felt like I had to answer these questions that people were asking very nicely with no ill intent. And I felt like I, I couldn't be rude. I had to answer back nicely. But really, I felt like I had been gutted. And I would leave scenarios and cry for hours. And the people that I had been talking to, I suspect, were sort of like, la, 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 like going about their evening, having no idea that they had hurt me so deeply. And so for me, having that nuclear option even if I didn't use it, I liked knowing that I could use it. <laughs> and when I did use it, it left the other person for sure feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> but then I was left feeling like, okay, well, at least I'm not the only one who was uncomfortable. So my nuclear option, which is very dramatic, I'll just tell you that to start. It's a very <laughs> dramatic one. Um, when people would say to me like, oh, what's happening? When are you guys having children? Or what's your, you know, I would just look at them straight face and say, I'm barren. And that's a party stopper. It feels biblical um, to say you're barren feels definitely, it felt biblical to say it. It felt like some kind of like, yeah, like, but it, it was, first of all, it was how I felt. I felt like I was barren. I wasn't conceiving. It was devastating all of the time. And what did uh, they say to that? Mostly they didn't say much. There's not much you can say with a nuclear. That's the thing. So, <laughs> you know, I think- And then do you have to just leave? Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that just shuts it down. I think that there's a way of saying a nuclear and then kind of pulling back from it. But for me, part of the, the benefit of the nuclear was really, and this sounds terrible to say, but it's, I mean, if we're being honest, this is the truth of it. It really felt like I was exhausted by leaving social and family situation. I was exhausted by leaving situations completely heartbroken and gutted with nobody having any sense of how devastated I was. It, it just didn't feel fair that people were putting me in this position to feel the way I felt. And I had no recourse to protect myself. And so it's true that the nuclear option leaves somebody else feeling uncomfortable. And my goal isn't necessarily to make somebody uncomfortable, but on the other hand, they made me uncomfortable. If you are in the middle of suffering your fourth miscarriage and you are still bleeding and somebody asks you, when you're having a child or points out that, hey, it's not so great to have so much space between your kids. You know, your, your kid is four years old. What are you waiting for? It I can't does believe people say that. All the time. And so you're standing there. You're literally still bleeding from a miscarriage. And somebody says that. 
for you to know that you have the right to say, I'm not saying you should say this, but you have the right to say, actually, we desperately want another one. I'm in the middle of my fourth miscarriage as we're talking. So would that make somebody else uncomfortable? Yes, I'm sure it would. On the other hand, the person who has been thrown that comment is devastated. And they're dealing with that devastation all alone because we don't make space for it to be okay to say the things that are true. Again, I'm not suggesting people go around blowing off those nuclear bombs, but I am saying that it can be helpful when you're thinking about how to address comments that you have a really vague one that gives no information, a middle ground one that indicates that things are hard, but without any details, and then your truth, because your truth is just your truth. It's, there's no morality to it. It's not bad or good. And if somebody asks you a question and your truth is an answer, then that's your answer. You have the right to give it if you want to. And if it makes them uncomfortable, maybe they'll think twice about asking that question next time. I just would really like it if you could offer some advice and some support to anybody maybe who's listening right now, who's in the middle of treatments or decisions about how they're going to have a child and it hasn't been straightforward and they're, they're experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety, what would you say to them? I would say a couple of things. Always remember you're stronger than you think you are. And it's hard to remember that when times are so hard and things seem so bleak, but you will absolutely get through this because you've gotten through other things in your life. And that's hard for us to remember when those other things seem far and when they don't seem as big. But the truth is, whenever we go hard through hard things, they are the hardest thing in that moment. So really remind yourself of some of the things that you've been through in your life, that you have gotten through them. Pay attention to the supports and the resources that you have around you. Are there people around you to support you? Are there people that you can reach out to? Take advantages of those supports. And then remember that you aren't alone in terms of the supports that are out there for you past your own circle. There are a lot of things that are available through Fertility Matters. That's a Canadian fertility patient advocacy support group and platform through Resolve in the States. There are support groups and there are lots of them that are free. Most of them are virtual right now, I believe. Um, There's one-on-one counseling, there's counseling supports, there are peer groups, there's all kinds of supports out there. There's chats. So I think, you know, you want to be careful that you're getting the right support for you. But I would say that infertility and reproductive loss is absolutely one of the most lonely things people go through, which is ironic because, I mean, I think it's one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage and one in six couples go through infertility. So you really aren't alone. And there are resources out there for you. And I would really, really encourage anybody who's suffering to reach out and to find support. Now, we're in the middle of a world pandemic. I would imagine this has, has had quite an impact on people who are um, having fertility treatments. What, what have you heard about this? So the initial impact, of course, was that fertility clinics closed down and surgeries closed down. So for example, uh, a woman who, was, who has endometriosis, who before she could do her IVF needs to have surgery for her endometriosis. And then she needs to be on medication for three months and then she can do her fertility treatment. It's possible that now everything has been delayed a year for her because everything is on backlog and she has to have a surgery that isn't even being booked yet before she can even do her IVF. 
that was clearly a very practical and very immediate stressor for people. And that stress was exacerbated by where people were in their fertility window, in their fertility cycle, and in their fertility treatment. So somebody who had had that surgery already and had a year before their endometriosis would start coming back, obviously was feeling very panicked. Um, so there's, you know, different things around the timing of it that made things more difficult for people. Um, women who have a lower egg reserve and who were very, very worried that by the time the clinics reopened, in fact, that their fertility would have taken a nosedive. In Ontario, uh, in, in Canada and Ontario, we have funding for IVF under the age of 43. So there were some big panics for women who were going to be turning 43 and the clinics were closed and they would lose their eligibility for a funded IVF cycle. So there were all kinds of stressors around that. Clinics have reopened and are working incredibly diligently to stay open despite second waves. Uh, they're all working very hard. They're being very professional and very, very careful in following the top and highest, most safety precautions. It's also true that as part of those safety precautions, they have to do things that make things ultimately harder for patients, and that includes supports. So it used to be that when you went in for an egg retrieval, your partner or your support person could be with you. That when you went in for an ultrasound to see a heartbeat or devastatingly that there was no heartbeat, that you could have somebody with you. That if you were having a miscarriage and needed a DNC, that you could have your partner or your support person come with you in the hospital. Those things are not allowed now. So that is, I would say, one of the big tolls that it has taken on people that they are not able to have that connection for the, the treatment partner to be undergoing what can be scary, what certainly are invasive, and what oftentimes are painful procedures alone is pretty devastating. And it's also incredibly devastating for non-treatment partners. So whether that is uh, the male partner or in a, a lesbian relationship, the other female partner or somebody who's sing single, their best friend or their mom, like whoever the non-treatment partner or support person is, to know that somebody you love needs you and for you not to be able to be there is devastating. And it means that when bad news is happening, it's happening over phone calls where uh, the treatment partner is having to call and tell her partner that there's no more heartbeat, that the baby has miscarried. And even when there's good news, and there's often good news, you know, after multiple losses or multiple IVF cycles that haven't been successful, to be able to get good news and see fetal movement on an ultrasound and to not have your partner with you to share in that joy, those things are pretty devastating. And so those have been some of the really big impacts of the pandemic. So with, with all of these difficult and, and stressful times that we're experiencing right now, what, what's giving you personally hope? What's making you feel optimistic? Well, I'd say one of the things that I tend to keep in mind is the idea of seasons. Everything has a season. I remember trying to think that when I was going through my own fertility. You know, it's um, one of the, the best and the worst things of humanity. Nothing lasts forever. Uh, and that includes pain. And that includes this pandemic. So that expression, which seems cliche, but this too shall pass, it will. And I will say to, to people who are in the midst of the worst of this, I really think there is nothing worse than being in the uncertainty of infertility and reproductive loss. Never having a child and moving forward without a child, moving to surrogacy or egg donation or embryo donation or sperm donation or adoption, any of those things is worse than the place of not knowing. And the place of not knowing 
can, by very virtue of what it is, never be a permanent place. So for me, just knowing that everything has a season, that this too shall pass, we don't know when COVID is going to end and when we can hug our loved ones again or travel or do any of those things, but we know that we will because nothing like this lasts forever. I'd say the other thing is connection. It's exhausting to try and connect with people when so much of the stuff that I'm doing all day is virtual (laughs) Um, and when connections aren't the way we want them to be. But the truth is it's still there is still possibility of those connections, going for walks with people, trying to get fresh air, figuring out ways to connect with the people that you love and to try and get that fresh air can make a really, really huge difference. When I think of my patients and my clients, what gives me hope for them is I know the doctors and the nurses and the embryologists are working so hard. They care so deeply and it often feels like you're alone in this. And so I just know that from that perspective, they're not, that the clinics deeply care um, across, not just Canada, across North America, across the world, fertility clinics care about their patients. They care about excellence and safety and everybody is doing everything they can to keep clinics open. And so that is, I think, really huge. And I'd say the last thing is around balance. I think that it's really important that we have a balance in the things that we do. So people talk about perspective. You know, it's important to have perspective. I think it is important to have perspective. I also think it's important to give yourself time to freak out. (laughs) It's important to remember that this isn't the worst thing in the whole world that could ever happen to anybody. It's also appropriate to recognize that it is the worst thing that's happening to you right now. So I think a balance between giving yourself space to feel grief and to feel panic and to feel distress And then also some space for perspective. Um, Honoring your fears. You know, I I spoke earlier about remembering facts and trying to stay in the present and trying to remember, you know, what what is true. But I also think that you need to honor your fears. You're afraid of things. And the idea of pushing away those fears and pretending they're not there, that's not going to help you either. You want to have that balance. Uh, And that's the same thing with finding humor. It's impossible to find joy all the time when you're in the midst of something so devastating. It's impossible to find happiness all of the time when you're in the middle of something devastating, but you can find some balance where you give yourself space for those sad feelings and you give yourself permission to look for and to do things that feel better, where you are controlling the things that are within your control and then trying to find ways of minimizing the stress and the anxiety that comes with those things that are out of your control. Dara Roth Edney, thank you so much for your time, for speaking with us today. I think that uh, anybody listening is going to feel some, a lot of support from your words. And I really appreciate the time you took to, to talk to us. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so, so much for giving attention to this topic. It's a really under-discussed area and one that there's so much need because, as you said, people people really do feel alone. So thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to speak to your listeners. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.